So in Advent, we think about God sending God's Son, the Son of God coming as a Savior to humankind, who for us is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But it may surprise you to learn that the first Son of God was named Octavian. He was born in 63 B.C., not as uh, a poor child born to subjugated parents as a part of a marginalized people group, but he was born into a wealthy establishment home in Rome. He ascended politically and militarily, so he became ultimately the emperor of Rome. And what Octavian is most known for is leading the Roman army to defeat Mark Antony and Cleopatra in the Battle of Actium in 30 BC, in response to which Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. But this then inaugurated a thing that came to be known as the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, a period of relative political, social, structural stability that persisted for well over two centuries, during which roads were constructed, civil projects were engaged in, that benefited everybody, sort of. It was such a remarkable achievement on the part of Octavius that he was exalted to become Caesar Augustus. And as a part of this, he was declared by a message of good news known as the Evangelion or the Gospel, as a part of which he was declared to be the Savior and the Son of God. He was deified. Here's a part of the message that described him. Providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set the world in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she, they were way ahead of us in gendering the deity, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and our descendants us being Romans, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our, expe- our anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done, <laughs> we therefore declare the birthday of the god Augustus as the beginning of the good tidings, the gospel, for the world that came by reason of him. So he is deified. The calendar is reoriented to center his birth. And this then becomes a thing for all the Caesars who come after. This Caesar, Caesar Augustus, was the Caesar who was in power during the birth of Jesus. More Caesars would certainly come after By the time we get to the writing of the Gospel of Luke, which we'll talk about today, there have been 11 in all, and every one of them is declared to be 
the benefactor of humankind, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, sent to bring peace to all. Now, of course, the peace was produced by military subjugation, by domination, by suppression of dissent. And it was portrayed again as a peace for all. But of course, for some it was not. So that by the time our Son of God comes, you have a group of people, the Judeans, and then sort of on the edge of the Judeans, this fringe sect who maybe by then were known as Christians. It's unclear exactly when that term came into being. But they were one of the subjugated people groups. So they might have enjoyed the benefit of a few better roads, but they were taxed heavily, they were oppressed, um, resources were extracted from them, they weren't permitted to practice faith in the way that they thought they ought to be able to practice faith. And so across time, they do not experience peace, right? Jesus was executed as a criminal of the state by the Caesar that came after Augustus. It was Nero, Caesar Nero, who this iteration of the Son of God, when the populace became restive, um, largely because Nero engaged in these huge, ridiculously expensive civil engineering projects that emptied the coffers of their resources, and so more money had to be extracted from the people. When they became restive in part because of this, it was Caesar who took Christians and engaged in a very explicit act of scapegoating. We will toss them to the lions as an entertainment so that we're all united in vilifying these people, and that puts our other descent to rest. A few Caesars later, it was Vespasian who, when the Judeans were chafing at the constraint of oppression, Vespasian, this iteration of the Savior, of the Son of God who came to bring peace, led the Roman army in besieging Jerusalem and in 70 AD destroying it so that, as the story goes, not one stone was left upon another. And this produced the diaspora, the flight of the Judeans out into the world and the turning upside down of their religion because the temple no longer existed. So we have to figure out a completely new way to do faith because the savior of the world, the bringer of peace, has destroyed us. And so at the point that this story is being told, the tellers of the tale and those listening to it have experienced again 11 saviors, 11 sons of God sent to bring peace to the world. And so the wondering would be, what's in it for us? How does this work for me? How does God come into my world into my life to bring peace, to bring a savior, to bring salvation 
Is there anything for me, or am I just going to have to pay the price again and again and again for a Savior who is not mine, for a peace that does not come to me? And so that's at least a part of the reality into which this story comes, this story that for me has been in my growing up experience just of loveliness and, as Pam said, the hope of snow and a nativity scene and a fire and a tree and lights. It is a different reality into which the story of our Savior was spoken. So the story begins in chapter 1 as a part of which the angel comes to Mary and says, you are going to bear a child who will be known as the Son of the Most High. We're going to pick it up in chapter 2. And I want you to try to inhabit the reality of the listeners of the story. There's... um, the way that it would have come to you is we would have heard as a small community of faith, right? And we're just sort of trying to hold on, trying to persist. There's trouble all around. As we're listening to the story, we're aware that our religious cultural center has just been destroyed by power. And the question is, are we going to make it? What is it that we have to hang on to? How are we going to maintain faith? How are we going to stay together as a community? Is it real? Is there any substance to this? And how does it speak into my lived reality now? So what we would have heard is that somebody's going to come and share a story from the leaders of our faith group. And they're going to come and present it as an oral performance because not many of us, not many of you or me can read. Fewer of us can write. And so we have, to gather to, we have to gather together to hear the story told. And when the story is told and there is a you coming from the speaker to the listeners, it really is meant to speak to you. It's not just a lesson in history. It's to bring you into our understanding of who Jesus is, who this person is, who we have decided to give our allegiance to, who we have decided to pay attention to, to believe. So here's part of the story. Now it happened in those days, an edict went out from Caesar Augustus that all the inhabited world should be enrolled in a census. This, the first enrollment, took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So right from the start, the story places us in the place of subjugation, right? We're used to a census being this kind of annoying thing that comes along every 10 years or so, and you got to answer it because that's how you get money from the government. But make no mistake, this was an act of domination by power. It's Caesar Augustus, the son of God, saying to himself, how many people do I own? And based on the number, how much money can I extract from them? 
And participation in a census by a subjugated people group would have been an explicit acknowledgement of that reality. Yes, you do own me. And I cannot escape from that reality. When I go and make myself counted as one of yours, that's what I'm doing. I am embracing this reality of domination. And so... Joseph went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, since he was from the house and lineage of David, to be enrolled with Mary, who was betrothed to him and who was pregnant. And while they were there, it came about that the days of her bearing reached their term. And she gave birth to her son, her firstborn. And she wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the lodge. And there were shepherds in the countryside there, dwelling out in the fields and keeping guard in the night over their flock. And an angel of the Lord stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were afraid, very afraid. And the angel said to them, Do not fear, for see, I bring to you good tidings of a great joy which will be for all the people. Because today, in David's city, a Savior was born to you, who is the anointed Lord. And this is a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a throng of the heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest places, and peace on earth among humankind, on whom God's favor rests. And it happened that as the angels departed from them back into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this story that has unfolded, which the Lord has made known to us. And hastening, they went and found both Joseph and Mary and the baby lying in the feeding trough as well. And seeing them, they revealed what they had been told concerning this little child. And everyone who heard was amazed at the things reported to them by the angels. But Mary kept all these things in her heart, pondering them. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as they had been told.
So as I think about the context and hear about this story coming to this group of people, a couple of things come to mind for me. The first is just the clear diminishedness of this announcement and of the coming itself. Some have tried to uh, make this way of describing the coming of Jesus as being a challenge to the Roman system because the language, it is packaged so much in the language. The Savior, the form of the announcement, the gospel, the Son of God. And so this is this early group of Jesus' followers saying to Rome, oh, you're in trouble now. You know, because you got the wrong guy and you've offended Jesus and God. And, and it's, I don't know, it just feels like a form of nonsense to me. Because you have, again, this band of straggly followers who are just trying to eke it out. And the letter is not addressed to Nero or to Vespasian or to Caesar Augustus, you know, this is our position paper or our op-ed piece, and here, here you go. I'll just be honest, I have the feeling it's, it, it, it feels like it's us as Christians today, and it's usually white educated men of the establishment who want us to have been powerful once upon a time for all time. And it's just, I just don't think so. I think this is just a message for people trying to figure out how do we keep going forward. And the diminishedness is just remarkable. The whole thing, all the people involved, Elizabeth and Zechariah and Mary and Joseph and Anna and Simeon, and the shepherds in the field, and here comes God to an obscure people group, suppressed, marginalized. And within them, God goes to a region of the country that, you know, so everybody is by comparison, right? So the people in Jerusalem would have been dismissive of the countryside. And the people in the countryside would have been kind of dismissive of shepherds. And so that's where God goes the shepherds. And the you-ness of it is just amazing. I am coming to you. I have a message for you. And yeah, everybody else will benefit from it, but it's to you again and again and again. Even the where. So God comes to the shepherds. It's for you. It's to you. The last people on the planet to whom you would think God would make this announcement and make it as a to-you announcement. And then the shepherds go where? To a place for animals, a stable with the feeding trough. And they think, oh yeah, this is for me. I am familiar with this place. This is where God chose to bring God's son, the savior of the world, wrap him in swaddling cloths, lay him in a feeding trough. how it's communicated, sure, it's angels, but these angels don't stick around and produce domination by force. 
They sing a song, make an announcement, and off they go. Right? So the two-you-ness of this, it really is for everybody. This is not a message of salvation and peace and hope and awesomeness for power. God goes straight to the powerless, to the subjugated, and there God finds the most marginalized and walks up to them and says, this is for you. This salvation, this Savior, this Son of God, this peace, it is for you first. I want to make that clear to you. And then the other thing that I'm aware of, too, is that the production of the piece has to be something different, which is super meaningful to me. Because if, if, if I'm honest, let's say we transported whatever it is that was going on back then, this way of giving the message to us now, I, within myself and my history and my derivation, probably would have been enjoying Pax Romana. Right? Today it would be Pax Americana. <laughs> I would be on the good side of that. I am not from a subjugated people group. I check all the right boxes on my demographic identity sheet. There's nothing in who I am that would put me on the outside, that would put me on the margins, right? But one way that I find my way into this peace that I think God is bringing through Jesus is to me, there is something that while it inhabits social, cultural, power dynamic reality, it also goes beyond that. I don't know about you, but I think all human beings carry within themselves at least a nervousness about a true encounter with God. If, <laughs> if it's me fully revealed before God fully revealed, I'm not really excited about that conversation. <laughs> because I have the anticipation, which is valid, <clears throat> that things in me, in who I am and how I'm wired and what I've done, which I'm not going to name to you this morning, you have your own, <clears throat> that in that moment, God's going to come up with valid reasons to say, yeah, not so much. And our religion just goes all in with this. My religious background, my Christian background, more than yours. Because I come from Calvinism. But you can pick yours, whatever Christian. <laughs> I see the Calvinist smiling. Um, we have gone all in with this, that there is a flood of wrath up in the heavens above us that is barely held back, that God just wants to splash onto all of us. And only because Jesus did this kind of annoying thing does God not get to do that. <laughs> and so we all have, I think, unless you come from a different culture than mine and had really awesome parents, we all have this negative anticipation of the encounter with God, the threat that comes to us from a true, through and through, unveiled encounter with God. But what I find in this story 
It's there in God's message to the shepherds, to the you, the angels saying, God's peace is here just because God's favor rests on you. This thought that you have had as humankind that God doesn't like you, that God is mad at you, that God is rageful towards you, that because of your genuine badness, God has it in for you, that is not true. I am here to tell you that God just through and through loves you, that God has always been favorably predestined. God's favor rests on you. It always has 100%. It does now. It always will. That will never change. That is ground zero. That is the basis for peace and peacefulness. And as I have spent my life trying to have that reality penetrate and supplant the other narratives that I have in my head about how God feels towards me, as that peace pervades my soul, it is amazing, right? It is the peace that passes understanding. And it transforms how I relate to the world then. If my if the sense of existential threat that I have from God towards me turns out to have been wrong, and I can believe what is actually the case, it just transforms my reality. It transforms my inner world. But I will say, too, the other way that I have into this is through stepping out of my, the whole construct of privilege into being one member of humankind with all of the other members and entering then into the plight of those not so favored as me, becoming involved in love relationships with people who society and who power diminishes and disempowers. A central part of that for our church has been our journey into inclusion where we've recognized how, how the God of Christianity, the Savior, the Son of God, has been for us but not for queer people, and that that is wrong. And that then becomes a model or a, model or a pattern for this with all similarly diminished or castigated people groups. I'll say for me personally, it often comes through my work as a psychiatrist because I encounter people with chronic and persistent mental illness. And it really hits me when I encounter someone my age. And my, I'll encounter a person. It resonates most with me when it's a man, 60 years old, who's lived his life suffering from mental affliction. And so I'll be aware of the cost to that person of a quality of life that I've been able to enjoy that they haven't. But I'm also aware of the diminished status that people like that have and the way they're treated and diminished and marginalized. And I was thinking about this story and just thinking, if God came to a room of us in the form of Jesus, I'm pretty sure Jesus would go up to, and you can pick who it is, who you would think has been traditionally marginalized, diminished in standing or status or dignity or personhood, who's been excluded from this benefit. 
Jesus would go straight to that person. So in my mind, I have patients who I have cared for. And I still have my own prejudices or notions of standing and status and all these things. But I know that Jesus would go to that person first and say, I am here for you. I am here as your savior. I am here as the bringer of peace to you. I am here as the son of God for you. And yeah, that'll be good news for a lot of other people too. But I want to make it clear who I am here for, who I am bringing peace to, that it really is peace for everyone. 